Hi, Penny. Hi, Sammy. Yo, welcome to my summer layer. I'm your host, Sammy. Easy listening, you nan. Okay, ready for this? When I say Kenny G, what is the first thing that pops into your head? For me, and this HBO Max documentary touches upon it, it's that classic elevator music sound. It appears as though I may be in the minority. Kenny G is the best-selling instrumental artist ever. Let me repeat that, because you need to let that sink in. Kenny G is the best-selling instrumental artist ever. So clearly lots of people are happily listening to Kenny G. He himself says, I don't think I'm a personality to people. I think I'm a sound. In the hectic boom and breathless backlash of Kenny G and his music, this entire discourse is electrified by a distinct philosophy of taste. Music is an emotional connection, though, for many critics, they are not sentimental about Kenny's music. Penny Lane's documentary, Listen to Kenny G, is more than a silhouette of the popular artist. By the time this night is over, you'll know more about Kenny G and hear some of his fiercest critics, who are not fans of his classics in the key of G. As such, I was thrilled to talk to director Penny Lane about the new standards of taste and Kenny G. Listening to Kenny G is part of HBO's Music Box series created by Bill Simmons, who gifted us 30 for 30 over on ESPN. Think of the Music Box series as Sonic 30 for 30s. You can stream the doc on HBO Max. This Music Box documentary happens to focus on Kenny G, whose music gives pleasure to many and yet angers others. As such, let's unpack all these complex emotions with director Penny Lane. Uh, are you ready now to discuss the triumph of Kenneth uh, Bruce Garlick? I sure am. All right. I got I to gotta ask the obvious question up front, because watching this documentary, you obviously had a great connection with Kenny G. As a director, did you have any like hard or fast rules about sax puns? Were they encouraged or discouraged? Like, Did you have to edit some of them out? Um, I didn't have any rules about it, but I presumed that there would be plenty, and there were. Um, I don't know that I made any, but Kenny made plenty. I think he's got like a whole you know, bag of them ready to go for yeah. any particular moment. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, a sax pun for every occasion, kind of like a Hallmark card. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So how did you connect with Bill Simmons uh, for this HBO Music Box series? Because these are a number of musical, uh, music-related docs. So how did you connect? So, um, yeah, Bill Simmons, who's like a legend, you know, um, started 30 for 30 when he was at ESPN. And I've always had a lot of respect for him, but never knew him. And he got in touch with me after my last film, Hail Satan, and told me that he was putting this music documentary series together called Music Box. I think at that point it had already been sold to HBO. I can't remember, but he had the series and um, he asked me, he kind of pitched me a few ideas that they had kicking around and none of them really resonated with me, but I really wanted to work with Bill and I really wanted the job. So I said I would think about um, music documentaries that I would want to make and would be excited about. So that was when I came up with the idea to make a film about Kenny G and specifically kind of why both he is so popular um, and also why that popularity really rubs a small number of very vocal people the really the wrong way. So that was really the pitch from the beginning. That tension that you're talking about, you, you open the film with a lot of like cultural elites and critics who are basically resoundingly rejecting Kenny G's and his damn music, basically. 
And as somebody used to teach film uh, to undergrad students, or maybe you still teach, like, how did you approach your lessons? Because film is just as subjective as music. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, that's where this film came from, was my experience being in a, a professor of art for 12 years. Um, and really longer, but for college, it was 12 years. I was teaching art in other contexts before that. So most of my career, I've been teaching art. And um, I've always found it really puzzling that more art professors don't spend more time feeling a lot of anxiety about the unearned power <laughs> that they have to decide what is good and bad art. I mean, it's, it's genuinely like horrifying in some way to me. Like, so, you know, over time, I kind of learned how to address it directly with my students. So like there'd usually be a conversation pretty early in the semester with every class where I would say, okay, let's discuss like how we evaluate art, what art is and what makes it good and what makes you like it and how those are different things and, you know, um, the role of taste in here and all of that. And let's have a conversation about that and acknowledge that there are no objective criteria um, by which we can judge art, which doesn't mean it's not important and doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it, but like it's not objective. We have to acknowledge that. And in this context, I am the person grading you. So like I have the authority in this mm -hmm. context to say what is good and bad art, but you know, I'm kind of acknowledging myself that that is the case. Uh, I don't know that every student received that well, but you know, <laughs> for me, it was very important to like have that conversation with students very directly as much as I could. I mean, I'm sure I didn't have that conversation in every class I ever mm -hmm. taught, but I tried to bring it up when I could. Does it make people uncomfortable when you are basically saying that there's no like final arbiter? Like if you were in a court case, you have a judge who makes the case, right? So you present your evidence and then you hope for the best. But with art and especially with music and like what was running through your whole documentary, listening to Kenny G, was that there really wasn't an arbiter because you opened it with the, the, the quote unquote cultural elites and the critics. But then you kind of close towards the end with this like wedding montage and like people having these like beautiful moments surrounded by like Kenny G's music. So yeah. does it make people uncomfortable that there isn't, quote unquote, like a final like verdict or like a final uh, decision on this music? Yeah, it makes me uncomfortable. I mean, it makes everyone uncomfortable because, again, it's not to say like my position is not like, well, there's no objective criteria by which we can judge art. Therefore, you know, this tweet mm -hmm. that Taylor Swift wrote is the same is Don Quixote. Like, clearly, <laughs> I don't think that, and yeah. I don't think anyone thinks that. So it's not about, like, throwing up your hands and giving up. So for me, the film, it was really important that the film do music criticism and do it really deeply because it, you need to deal with the music. Like, you can talk about composition. You can talk about things like production quality and sound and like reverb and you know the difference between recording a live take and recording a take where you record over and over and then splice together the best moments like all that's real valid important stuff to deal with so that you can make informed evaluations of a work of art mm -hmm. it's simply separating the question of whether that informed opinion has like kind of ultimate authority and the film obviously makes the case that it doesn't because, you know, music is very contextual. Like this music for me, I associated with waiting rooms and malls and, you know, hold music and, you know, radio stations the that elevator. I didn't like, right? 
Yeah, in the 90s. And mm-hmm. that was when I encountered this music. And that's the context in which I, you know, thought of it. And that's exactly what Ben Ratliff says at the beginning of the film. I associated this music with a corporate attempt to soothe my nerves. <laughs> and I didn't like that. Mm-hmm. That was kind of him standing in for me there. Um, but the, the thing that's amazing is that, you know, if you encounter an 18-year-old, to, you know, a 24-year-old today, when they encounter Kenny G's music, it's not in that context. They're not receiving it as like waiting room music. They're receiving it as this kind of like weird artifact from the 80s that's sort of cool um, and has this kind of nostalgic thing built in that they're really into. And so that just shows in and of itself that there's no final answer on this, right? Like, maybe Kenny G's music will be considered great in the future. Like, I mean, again, I don't know. Uh, you, you never really know uh, how you see these things change over time. And that really gives the lie to the idea that these evaluations are final and objective. They're never final. And is that that idea and that impetus, is that where the title comes from? Actually listening to Kenny G? Because I think sometimes yes. people just kind of, like you said, you're in the elevator or the waiting room or whatever it may be. And you just kind of gloss it over. And it's not just his music, but also listening to Kenny G as a man, like as a person. Because you get, I, right. I'd never heard a Kenny G interview before for somebody that had been around and I read Rolling Stone and all these other things. I just, watching your documentary, it occurred to me, I'm like, oh yeah, I've never actually listened to a Kenny G interview before. Yeah, I hadn't either. Um, and so when I was researching the film and putting my pitch together, I watched a lot of interviews with him and I saw that he's great. Um, and I was like, oh, cool, because you know, he's also a great character. Like, you Mm -hmm. could hang this movie just on him as a character, and that would probably be a great film. But I had to try to squeeze that in with all this other stuff I was trying to do. But anyway, so yeah, I had never heard an interview with him. I had never really listened to Kenny G. I had heard it, Mm -hmm. which is very different. Um, It had kind of passively been around me, but I'd never sat and thought, like, let's listen to this music. Like, what what is it? Like, what? why is it so successful? I mean, it's really a big question. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, of course, an unanswerable one, but it's interesting to consider reasons, you know. Is the fact that his music was instrumental and didn't have lyrics, did that help it achieve global penetration um, in an era where mass culture was being exported from the United States in this way that was, like, very, very um, heightened? Um, and, or did it matter that like his music hit at a moment where, you know, um, a lot of corporations wanted to play music in their, in their, in their work areas for the workers to like, you know, work better too. And did the success of that music play into that and like the kind of growth of market research and, you know, there's a lot of like factors that go into his success, some of which is in the music, some of which is in marketing Mm -hmm. and some of which is in like random chance, like, Clive Davis writing a letter on your behalf, you know? I mean, like, there's so many unlikely things that had to come together to create a Kenny G. And that was one of the things that I didn't really fully appreciate when I was starting the film was really what a unicorn he is. Like, Mm -hmm. there's no one one else, like, there's nobody else in in history Mm -hmm. that has that career. Like, an instrumental artist, he's the 26th best-selling recording artist of all time. Um global domination for yeah. decades, you know, and you know, obviously he's not playing these huge, you know, sellout arenas now, but you know, he's still around, his career's still going and like just that longevity and just, I don't know, there's something about that, that, that career that is very weird and, and unlikely. Yeah. One of the things that you're talking about, like you mentioned in the documentary Breathless, which came out in 19, 1992, uh, that was a full year after Smells Like Teen Spirit. We were well on our way into grunge and I'm like, I just don't associate Breathless 
<laughs> with like 90s music and like grunge and that kind of like it's you know Nirvana, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, Kenny G. That was the era, and it doesn't really associate with that era. So it does feel well. Like that's right. I mean, K Kenny G, Celine Dion. You know, don't forget. Like, there's just a whole other. Like, there's a culture that the bands that you're describing were reacting against, right? The mm -hmm. bands that you're describing are essentially countercultural, and then they became big and signed to big labels, and that created all the angst of the '90s, which was like. Fuck corporate media, but also, like, we're on a big label. So, you know, so that was the 90s for me. So the whole workings of an industry that would, like, feature, you know, that where Celine Dion is, like, the biggest artist and Kenny G is, like, right up with her and there's Michael Bolton and Richard Marks and all these people who, like, existed, but I would have thought were just, like, not even worth talking about, like, beneath my contempt, you know, at that point in my life, um, being an arrogant teenager. <laughs> Um, it's easier now to look back and be like, yeah, that's a lot of that is just cultural. You know, it's like, who were your friends? What did MTV tell you was cool? Because mm -hmm. it's not like I figured out Nirvana was cool, like yeah. on my own somehow. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. so, but yeah, I mean, Kenny G, just needless to say, has sold a lot more records than Nirvana um, ever did. So, or any of the artists you just mentioned. <laughs> Which is crazy, right? Yeah. And that's, I think, one of the things that's divisive about him. And I want to talk about your previous documentary, Hail Satan, which also documented controversial, decisive individuals. So did that experience working on that inform your work on Kenny G, who still oddly divides people? Yeah, it did. I mean, in the sense that like, I'm often very attracted to subjects or figures or personalities who um, that are divisive. I mean, that's all I'm, I'm looking for, like, meat. I'm looking for conflict in a not cheap way. Like, I'm not looking for conflict as in, like, some jerk thinks some other jerk is a jerk, right? Like, I'm really looking for, like, like, deep, meaningful conflicts. And so for me, you know, when I started to think about the idea of musical taste and why that inspires so much passionate conflict, I mean, Kenny was obvious, but, yeah, I do think the experience of making the Satanism film was instructive because, you know, you're kind of always having to remember, like, where is your audience likely coming from? Like, what is their, like, sort of very likely, what is their pre-existing kind of entry point into this material? Mm -hmm. And how can you meet them where they are and then kind of, like, lead them down a path of, like, revelations or reversals or questions? And I feel like both this film and Hail Satan have that kind of structure where I'm kind of trying to anticipate how my audience is likely to react to a moment or a scene, a piece of information, and then trying to like guide them to the next thing where they, they think they've settled on a point of view and then they're kind of having to kind of constantly shift it, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause one of the critics, Will Lehman, uh, he talks about uh, jazz as a dialogue. This is kind of what mm -hmm, you're talking mm -hmm. about. And he goes on to add, of course, that <laughs> he doesn't hear any conversation in Kenny G's music. Uh, he actually refers to it as masturbation rather than sex. So, how has the dialogue then been with the audience? Because this is uh, screened at a number of film festivals. Like, are people, I guess, are they seeing the light now and they're coming around to Kenny G or they're like, they're doubling down on their hate? Or like, how has that dialogue been with the audience? It's been anything you could imagine. I mean, I very deliberately structure the film to let people have their own experience and their own opinion at the end. There are people who come into the film disliking Kenny and come out hating him more. There are people who come into the film with no particular opinion on Kenny and um, kind of come up with their own new, you know, there's a whole range. Um, and then there are a lot, and then you have to acknowledge that there are most people in the world, if I tell them, 
I made this film about why people hate Kenny G, they'd be like, who hates Kenny G? Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. Everyone loves Kenny G, right. you know? So that's also an experience. People are like, I didn't even know mm -hmm. that people were mad about Kenny G. Like, everyone likes Kenny G. Isn't that your favorite Christmas album or whatever? So probably like a little less in a film because so far it's been film festivals, as you know, like it'll be on HBO. And once it's on HBO and HBO Max, it'll have a very different audience. Mm -hmm. And so... I'm interested to see like how a much broader audience reacts because film festival audiences are tend to be fairly culturally sophisticated people. They tend to kind of be from a certain world, which is the world that I live in, which again, we can kind of like roughly describe as cultural elites. If you mm -hmm. want to like have a term that mm -hmm. inter incorporates it, you know, it's the knowledge workers of the world unite <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. Um, anyway, so that's kind of tends to be more the crowd at film festivals. So I definitely was meeting more of that type of audience that like didn't like Kenny G. Maybe they only came to see it because they had um, knew that I directed it and mm -hmm. liked my films. Like maybe they wouldn't have even seen it otherwise. So that's a very different audience than the ones on HBO Max. The, the big the big HBO Max audience has never heard of me. And is not coming to this film because they think, oh, what would Penny Lane do with Kenny G? I want to know. Like, that's, we'll see. I have no idea how, yeah. like, the popular audience will. Yeah, because you tend to tweet a lot of poetry and talk about poets. And poetry is the same thing sometimes mm -hmm. where, like, it defies easy interpretation. You think you've read something and you think you understand it. And then you're like, you walk away from reading something and then you're like, wait a minute, that was really profound. That had some depth in it and I need to like work through it. Other times you read something and you're like, you can easily dismiss it. Like that's a terrible poem. That's like, that's garbage, right? So poetry is the same thing where like, you seem to like to wrestle through some of these issues and trying to figure these things out and trying to get to the heart of the matter. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think so. But also, you know, the, yeah, the kind of art that I like is textural and layered and like contradictory and full of mixed feelings. I mean, for me, like mixed feelings are like the texture that mm -hmm. is missing, missing completely in a Kenny G catalog. Like it's, they're not songs that are like pulling and pushing you in different directions. Like they're songs that are like, this is a song about falling in love. And like, that is the feeling. It is nice. You know, it's not like, <laughs> oh, it's nice, but it's also terrifying or it's nice, but it's also like, you know, maybe it kind of crushes you because you know you're going to lose that person eventually. Like, that's not the... So anyway, so I really yeah. like this, like, I guess you'd say, like, complicated art sh shit. And, like, you know, and that's not what most people want from art most of the time. And so, again, acknowledging that, like, I am the weird one, that most people do just want art that makes them feel good and, like, it sort of, you know, makes them um, feel nice and it is beautiful and it is a demonstration of a difficult skill done well like that's kind of the checklist for most people in with most art mm -hmm. um you know that's how they evaluate it like it, it there's not like a lot of like well conceptual analysis or something like how is this person reinventing the rock single is not how a typical person is experiencing their you know new favorite rock single yeah, like you said, there's also a corporate agenda as well that kind of drives the things, right? Then I think that's the tension because music is a very emotional reaction, right? Like you said, if, yeah. if this is like a love song or like you had the wedding montage uh, to go back to the documentary, obviously there are these couples who have made this kind of emotional connection to Kenny's songs or a couple of Kenny's songs. It, it, it is as much as this is a corporate endeavor, it's show business, not show friends. It is also kind of this emotional connection, which then feeds into our identity and who we are. 
Yeah, and that's a very complicated set of things, you know. And I also just want to say, it's, I am not making an argument that, like, I have this sophisticated palette and, like, the other people don't. Like, actually, it's not true at all. Like, most of the TV I watch is bad. Like, you know, I'm kind of like, what am I looking for out of an encounter with art is mostly very similar mm -hmm. to what what I'm describing now is these other people, like, you know, how they encounter art. Like, it's mostly me, too. Like, what am I looking for when I put on some music on a Sunday afternoon to fold my laundry? Is it to be challenged intellectually or is it to like make folding laundry a little less boring or painful? You right. know? So anyway, I just want to acknowledge that like, I'm not making an argument about like this, these people and those people. I think we're all, all of these people, most people have like one thing that they're like really obsessive about and like kind of more of a connoisseur of, mm -hmm. you know, and that might be something that is not something I know anything about. Yeah. I might. I probably have very middle brow taste in like classical music, for example. I don't have a deep knowledge of that form, and so when I go and listen to the classical music that I listen to, I'm certain that many, many people who are connoisseurs of that music would look at my playlist and be like, "Oh, you know, yeah. <laughs> this is like the worst stuff. Yeah. Like this is banal or something." Right. You know. So I just want to acknowledge that. Like we're all, and to get back to your question about like the corporate kind of layer of it. I think that's also where I was interested in Kenny as a person because when you're an artist working in a marketplace, like you are a business person and you are an artist and like if you can't handle like the fact that you have to be both those things, then you just can't function in the world. And I thought Kenny was an interesting example of someone who had um, really navigated that, I thought, pretty intelligently. Mm -hmm. He sees – he's no problems. He's not like, oh – there's this authentic art I want to make, but no one wants it, so I make this other stuff. It's like, no, he's really making the art he wants to make, and he just considers himself very lucky that other people like it. Yeah, he's at peace. When you watch a documentary, you can kind of see that he's at peace with who he is and what he's made. He's beyond at peace. He's in love with who he is and what he's made. Like, he's yeah. so happy. He's the happiest person I've ever met by, like, a lot. Um, and the most self-confident. Yeah. He's very self-confident. So then just to kind of wrap this up then, I wanted to know one other thing, which is that, like you said, he was able to navigate all these different kind of tensions, all these different criticisms, all these different aspects. And and as you said, some people didn't even quite like him. But you you kind of have a similar journey, don't you? Because you're going through life with the name Penny Lane. So doesn't that already kind of like generate a lot of like uh, assumptions? I'm expecting the same kind of jokes that you get all the time, same kind of questions. Like... Did that experience that you have going through life with the name Penny Lane, did that impact the conversations and stuff you were having with Kenny G? Like you were able to understand him uh, from what how he was trying to navigate things? Well, it's funny because like I, I didn't think about that ever because of course like I don't think about my name. Like my name is like I don't think about it anymore. But um, But after I finished it and like since I've been talking to people about their reactions to it, I have realized that my name does have an interesting connection to the film in the sense that you know, the film is about, you know, why people connect to certain music and certain artists. And like my parents were so in love with the Beatles and they bonded like their like love for each other was bound up in their love, mm -hmm. their mutual love for the Beatles. And so that's, that was so true that they like named their daughter after a Beatles song, which I think is really an, a powerful piece of evidence to how deeply we tie our sense of personal identity to the music we love. Mm -hmm. We don't do that with like everything. Like people don't like, if you like love the novels of Herman Melville, mm -hmm. it'd be weird for you to develop <laughs> an entire 
public facing personality and social group based right. on that. But if you love like industrial music, like being a goth is just like normal mm-hmm. or like, you know, you can create an entire public facing identity out of your taste in music. And that doesn't happen with paintings or novels or films even. So I'm very interested in why that is. But yeah, music. Yeah. I think that that's where my name ties in is like how deeply people tie it to their sense of self. All right. Thank you for hanging out with myself, Penny Lane. And uh, thank you for the documentary. Um, that's it. I think we covered quite a bit. We got uh, music and identity. We covered Kenny G. And that's, uh, some people love him and some people hate him. And here we are. Almost everyone loves him. I always have to say this to people. Like, just remember, yeah. almost everyone on this planet loves Kenny G. I mean, you're not selling that many... Film- you're not selling yeah. that many records and selling out that many shows without love. Right? I mean, who are these people oh. <laughs> who are like buying these 75 million records, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. For young people, that's a lot of records. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks for helping out the kids. All right. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. It was nice to talk to you. Thanks again. That was director Penny Lane. Her documentary, Listening to Kenny G, is streaming on HBO Max as part of the Music Box series. You know, the thing is, I didn't have any Kenny G feelings going into this documentary. Yeah, I mean, I knew the name, but I certainly couldn't tell you any of the songs. I never heard the music intently or even listened to the man himself like in an interview. And now after this doc, I don't know where I stand. Taste is weird. I don't know how it develops in everyone. That's the biggest takeaway from this doc. It's a curious thing because people might be willing to deal with a non-linear indie movie or even a slow foreign film. You know, some readers are even up to the challenge of a thick book. So degrees of difficulty are permitted in pop culture. Some can even find success. But difficult pieces of music? I mean, jazz is popular, but would you say it's as mainstream and has as much success as like The Stones or U2 or Radiohead? Can a jazz band sell out Madison Square Garden? Taste is weird and strange, but never hide it. Share what you love with others as often as you can. The creator, the artist, benefits. And who knows, you might have a positive impact on pop culture. Huh. What are your thoughts on Kenny G? Do you have any Kenny G feelings? If somebody has never heard Kenny's music, what is a good song or even a good album to start with? Let me know I'm at My Summer Layer for all three. IG, Facebook, and Twitter. My Summer Layer. What are your Kenny G thoughts and feelings? And if somebody's never heard Kenny's music, what is a good song or even a good album to start with? Thank you so much for listening to me in a smooth jazz world. Kenny G, yo!